0: Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name is Neil Headley. A few things to quickly get out of the way before we get this episode started this week. If you're new to the show, some quick info on what we do around here. I've been doing morning radio and television for more than 30 years. So the last time I got consecutive nights of good sleep was somewhere around 1989. I decided to try to find a solution to my sleep issues, write a book about the different things I'm going to try along the way. This podcast is basically the research phase of the book where I'm talking to neuroscientists and sleep researchers and celebrities and high achievers too in an effort to find that magical something that eludes more than 100 million people in North America alone. Now, I want to extend a heartfelt thank you as well to the people who have become bedheads. That's sort of an exclusive insiders club by going to buymeacoffee.com snooze. No, literally, that's what it's called, buymeacoffee.com slash snooze. Now, because I'm trying to cut my caffeine intake, your generosity will instead go toward, you know, keeping the show afloat. Uh, Thanks as well if you've gone to ratethispodcast.com slash snooze. To leave a rating or a review for the show there, the more of those we get, the more people become aware of the work we're trying to do. And to that end, if you've shared our stuff on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, I'm grateful for that. Our handle on all three platforms is get your snooze on. And this week, we're going to try to get back to our regular rhythm of sharing the most current and compelling science about sleep. Now, on to this week's episode. You're going to hear me tell our guest that when this show was first conceived, I wanted an answer to the question, how do you fall asleep in a foxhole? Well, this man might be better positioned to answer it than just about anybody uh, because of the massive impact that he had over the course of a career on how the men and women in the United States Marine Corps... Trained. He is the recipient of the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, the Defense Superior Service Medal, three legions of merit, the Joint Service Achievement Medal, the Joint Meritorious Service Medal, and that is just scratching the surface of the career of Major General Melvin Speece. One thing before we get to Major General Speece, you're going to hear me make reference to a previous guest on the show named Liz Stanley. She introduced me to... Mel Speece. Her name is Elizabeth Stanley, author of Widen the Window. That is a book that is nothing short of spectacular. It deals with resilience after stress, recovery from trauma. Now, Liz refers to sleep as one of the pillars of that resilience and recovery, but it's only the tip of. Of Liz's iceberg. I tie her book to sleep because that was the area that was most in line with my specific interests. But I want to make sure I mentioned off the top of the show this week that sleep is just one area that Liz covers with incredible expertise. So you can definitely learn more about Liz and more from Liz by going back a couple of episodes in this show's archives and by grabbing her book, Widen the Window. Now, Let's get on with this week's episode and a conversation with Major General Melvin Speece. I am going to start you with exactly the same question that every guest, uh, past and future, gets on the snooze button, uh, and that is this. How did you sleep last night?
1: Actually, Neil, I slept reasonably well.
0: So what's reasonably well for you look like?
1: I fell asleep relatively quickly, which is common for me, and... I wake up and go to the restroom, oh, a couple times a night. That's how it is, and I've tried some medicines to see if I could reduce that. doesn't seem to work very well. And typically, when I go back to sleep or try to go back to sleep, I'll struggle. Um, But last night and, frankly, over the last couple of weeks, I've been able to Fall asleep again and then have uh, a reasonably comprehensive amount of sleep over the course of the night. So, and last night I think I might have gotten up twice and I fell back asleep okay. So, that that for me is a, a very good night's sleep. And, and I'll get, I think the total was somewhere between six and eight hours. That seems to work well for me.
0: Now, before I go any further, uh, a couple of pieces of housekeeping that I want to I, I want to get cleared out of the way. First of all, um and you probably had an indication from the 8700 emails that you and I have exchanged uh getting today's conversation set up. I I can't go any further without saying thank you for your service. I appreciate that. And and uh to be able to alleviate some of the awkwardness on my end, should it be general? Should it be major general? What's the best way to address you going forward in this conversation?
1: Uh, my name works very well. You can call me Mel. That, that works, Neil. Uh, I'm, I'm okay if you want to refer to me as general, but I'm very, very comfortable with my name. Um, I've had it for a long time, a lot longer than I had the title.
0: Then I am honored. Thank you for that, Mel. I appreciate it. Um, so, give me and and uh, everybody listening, if you can give me just sort of a snapshot of the time that you spent in the service. It was an incredibly distinguished career. I, I'm I'm looking at so many shots of you online and reading the multiple pages of your resume and thinking that they probably needed to start to fit you for a larger uniform just to make room for all the medals. <laughs> Um, so, give me a bit of a snapshot of your time in the service.
1: Well, I had kind of an odd career, and it may be difficult for you and those who uh, aren't aren't Marines and don't quite have a feel for Marine cor- career patterns. But, but I'll I'll talk my way through that. Uh, I spent 37 years on active duty. I I came in the Marine Corps via the Naval ROTC program at the University of Illinois. I was commissioned a second lieutenant uh, as I graduated. And then, like all Marines, I went off to the basic school for six months. I was an infantry officer. So that was uh, kind of the background. I am an infantry officer by occupational specialty, Um, a typical career pattern, as as I went through until um, my time as a colonel. But then my career took this kind of very peculiar and narrow turn in the training and education business. Uh, and I don't know that we've ever had a flag officer who had the, the extensive training and education background that I had. Uh, getting selected and you know there was no question that that's how the Marine Corps saw me when I was selected for Brigadier General. Hence my assignments commanding training command, going back to 29 Palms to have the Combat Center and the Marine Air Ground Task Force Training Command and then moving to Quantico to have all of training and education for the Marine Corps. So
0: um,
1: yeah a little bit Odd in in that regard, but but interestingly enough, uh, that happened at obviously peak times during the war. I was at the School of Infantry when the war started, um, and and I was at Twenty Nine Palms in Training and Education Command as we were going through the big training and preparing units to deploy to combat the continual high rotations into Iraq and then afghanistan and then the very specific mission rehearsal training that supported uh units getting ready to, to go into combat uh so so that's i guess uh, a bit of a snapshot certainly as a more senior officer uh so so that's my my background if you will
0: now we've been uh we've had men and women in uniform on combat duty for it feels like ages now um this feels yes. like it's been an extended period of having men and women on combat duty. Am I misreading that or am i am I close?
1: No, not at all. It's unlike uh maybe anything we've seen in history with the possible exception, Neil of the um, Indian Wars of the West um, where we went through the conflict with westward expansion and the Native Americans. Uh, so that was for the Army a very extended period of intermittent combat uh, although somewhat continuous. I mean, we we, we even uh, had Uh, Indian wars going on during the Civil War. So I guess if anything, from a historical perspective, it's a little bit more like that. We had the very intense years of high combat in Iraq, the transition to Afghanistan, uh, but we were also involved fighting uh, terrorist groups in the Philippines, Uh, obviously the ungoverned spaces of Somalia uh, we were supporting um, nationalist forces in Yemen. Um, so now, and now, obviously, the operations in Syria, and supporting uh, uh, the the security forces of Afghanistan and Iraq, helping train them so they can maybe better handle their own fights. And so this, there's this now continuous low level rotation of u s service members in in combat operations, and gosh, it's gone on since um, arguably what uh, late two thousand and one early two thousand and two and it's been continuous since then, so you're reading this exactly right
0: this this time has hit pretty close to home for you as well
1: oh well. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, it covered a pretty healthy portion of my career. My oldest daughter um, was a Marine combat engineer on the roads in Iraq prior to the surge. Uh, my other daughter boarded a pirated ship, uh, another Naval, Naval Academy graduate um, in, in the, uh, off the Horn of Africa, my son uh, had independent battle space in Nasad as an infantry platoon commander. My son-in-law fought in the first battle of Fallujah. He fought in Ramadi, and then he had a battery uh, in Afghanistan. So I've certainly seen that within the family, and I've 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 lost uh, like like everybody who's had extended uh, time and service. Um, some people I've I've known and, and were special to me lost their lives in combat as well.
0: Talk to me about as, as we think about the training that's involved, uh, particularly in the Marine Corps, not just the extended period of boot camp, but as you were describing all the months that come after, um, some of the training at least has shifted the last probably what decade or a couple of decades to focusing as well on. What's happening for a soldier north of their neck, if if you'll forgive my describing it that way? But yes. a great deal of the training sure. and education has shifted to that location, hasn't it?
1: Yes, it has. You know, we we, we go through these continual debates uh, about this. We we've always, Neil, focused on that um the difference is as we um as we got into these operations in Iraq and Afghanistan instead of squads and platoons and companies being a part of these larger formations in more conventional combat where they are Really, receiving tasks and then translating their mission sets into their own tasks to be accomplished um, they they are they were now really making greater decisions, um, having to do a lot more complex thinking and complex problem solving uh, so yes we we were focusing on that. Uh, to be sure. We, we were trying to develop um, not just battle drills and how to soundly apply the battle drills, the right battle drills in the right situations, but we really had to get them thinking more complexly about the environments they were operating in. And they had to deal with so many more things. Again, it wasn't you know, in so many ways, the actual combat action was the simplest of the things they were involved in. Uh, gosh, I've I've got photos of my son who was responsible for six villages, um, in in the Nowzad district of, you know, communicating and dealing with um, village elders who'd spent their entire lives with AK-47s in their hands uh, as he was trying to understand the complex dynamic of the enemy threat that hid within that complex social environment and then trying to isolate it and eliminate it. So, yes, in fact, it was interesting. Uh he communicated with me very early in his tour over there on on, on how he saw that, that that it was a intellectually stimulating environment. It wasn't simply tactics. Uh and, and he found that to be challenging. So yes, we, we were really working on decision making and complex decision making for our service members, and pushing that to lower and lower levels.
0: So the reason that you came to my attention in the first place, um, other than, of course, a distinguished career, is uh, a guest that was on this show early December, uh, Liz Stanley, uh, who has uh, a, a spectacular book called Widen the Window. And I would encourage anybody listening who wants to learn more about Liz and her work, to go back to the episode uh, that's got her on it, it talks about stress and PTSD and all these various things and their impact on your sleep. Now, Liz described you as a person who really became a champion for mindfulness-based approaches to, uh, for lack of a better verb, soldiering. And a- although she did say yes. that you did put it through its paces early on because uh, to describe you as a skeptic would have been a fair description, but that you became quite a champion for applying mindfulness based practices to how our men and women in uniform do their jobs.
1: Yes. When I got to the first Marine Expeditionary Force in Camp Pendleton, uh, the commanding general who, who brought me out there uh, Contemporary and 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 a friend uh, Joe Dunford, who recently retired as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was working very hard on resilience. We we were trying to deal with a whole bunch of different things. Obviously, PTS and you know some of the effects of that. We we had this ongoing problem of suicides not necessarily tied to deployment and combat, but still nonetheless a challenge we were facing. And we had some other issues as well. And uh, as I got there, there was, in fact, Liz was part of this. She ran into Joe at a resilience conference or brain conference, the brain at war or something like that and and had a conversation. So we at at First Marine Expeditionary Force were looking at, in, in particular, her structured Mindfulness Mind Fitness training on how that might work and what the implications could be on enhancing, if you will, uh, above the shoulders. Although I would offer maybe in certain ways kneel below the shoulders, but above the waist, you know, into the heart, into the spirit, in addition to just the mind. And um, yes, I I, I was a skeptic um, simply because I just wasn't sure what we would be getting out of it. What convinced me was the physiological evidence that was behind um, the theory of mindfulness in particular. What caught my attention, Liz said, that um, the frontal cortexes of special operations forces tend to be more developed than the average person. And that frontal cortex looks like the frontal cortex of uh, world-class athletes, and I thought that was interesting uh, because there was now some some science, some physical, phys- physiological evidence we could look at. Now, it's not necessarily that, that special operations develops that. It's, in fact, the kind of people who will be successful to get into special operations in the first place. When you take a look at Buds uh, basic underwater demolitions uh training that that the SEALs go through and, and basic SEAL training, you have to be I mean we're we're looking in fact not at good swimmers, if you will, but but people who are maybe water polo Uh, successful water polo players in order to make it through that kind of training successfully. When you take a look at the physical demands that go on the qualification course, the Q course that the Army runs for special forces, um, the average run-of-the-mill service member is not going to make it through that training. I mean, we already know that by attrition statistics. So who are the kinds of people that make it through there? People who are both, Physically and mentally well-developed. Um, so we're talking about people who were very, very successful high school athletes and college athletes uh, who look a lot like, if you will, kind of world-class athletes. So those things are developed by very rigorous Physical training, and and I would offer to you that to be a successful athlete, your mind is getting developed at the same time your body is, because you're pushing yourself through the physical barriers that you have, and that's as much uh, mental and spiritual as it is physical. To not give up, you know, at the point of friction to overcome the obstacles, those kinds of things. So. It struck me that that made a lot of sense, and there was physiological evidence to that. And then what we were seeking to do with mindfulness is to uh, first validate the ability to uh, employ mindfulness techniques and exercises to exercise the brain and develop those things within the brain uh, that will help uh, the average service member grow that portion of the brain, strengthen that portion of the brain, just like they would uh, their heart and lungs and biceps and legs. In addition to that, What we were seeking to do as well, and and this is part of the physiological evidence, is to unwind the central nervous system that gets tightened and tightened and tightened under great stress, and in many cases, uh, much tougher stress than an athlete faces, an athlete is facing the stress of competition, not necessarily the fear of death or being maimed, in addition to being in this complex problem-solving environment that is, oh, by the way, very often very physically demanding, the loads that the service members are carrying on their bodies, the length of patrols, the physical demands that all go with it. So, I saw this and what we were seeking to do were two things. One, enhance the brain. And uh, the second function would be to help unwind the constant tension tied in the central nervous system that could be triggers to things like uh, stress and post-traumatic stress.
0: And I assume that the skepticism – would have probably been pretty widespread. I mean, I would think, you know, for, again, to go back to uh, trying to look at it from a layperson's uh, perspective, from a civilian's perspective, we think of, you know, basic training and boot camp and all those sorts of things. And we all have these, Hollywood-style images of people crawling along under barbed wire and climbing uh, wooden fences, almost like going through an obstacle course sort of a scenario, and and all these things that are, are to emphasize toughness and to emphasize um, endurance and things like that and putting your body through all kinds of uh, remarkable stress to be ready for the most stressful situations, but – To go to a Marine or a Marine commander or uh, someone who is responsible for training and educating and saying, well, hold on, among the most important things we can train these men and women to do are things like how to sleep properly, uh, meditation, uh, things that are happening uh, aside from all of the physical demands. I'm assuming that there would have been a certain amount of pushback on that.
1: Yes. Interesting anecdote. Uh, we, we were doing some experimentation and Liz uh, working with Liz uh, and her team and I was going through it as well. I thought that was maybe one of the better ways to help understand what what the uh, training w- would be able to do and we had one battalion that uh, was in particular with the leadership, very enthused and supportive. And another one where the leadership was, in fact, not just very skeptical, but resistant. And we were getting, to a large degree, different sets of results, principally because the organization that was resistant wasn't doing the work necessary to give us an opportunity to assess the effects of the training. And, uh, it required the, the introduction of a very, very senior leader in the Marine Corps to communicate to the battalion commander that we weren't particularly interested in his opinion. We were interested in the results and that, uh, his compliance was required. It wasn't requested. Uh, in order for us to try to get a better understanding on what this could do for us. So, yes, there there, there certainly was. And it's unfortunate, but it's natural, Neil. Uh, it, it happens commonly with all kinds of different things. And it's part of human nature.
0: Now, for you to be participating in this training... First of all, um, hats off once again, um, because, you know, for the commanders to put themselves in there and go through the training themselves, I think I think establishes a certain amount of belief in the outcome even before it gets started. But I mean, you personally, Major General Spees, aside for a second, and let's talk about Mel for a second. Historically, you and Sleep have had an interesting relationship over the years anyway.
1: Yes, um... I've had difficulty sleeping, and and I'm not quite sure why. I've been through some sleep therapies. I've got a very, very, very low-level sleep apnea, but that's not the problem. I don't inadvertently wake up at night, and certainly as I became much older and more aware of this, I wasn't having trouble falling asleep, although there was a time, I think, I was having difficulty falling asleep. It was really falling back asleep. And uh, so my sleep was interrupted. I wasn't getting the quality of sleep I needed. And I think we know the physiological consequences of sleep. In fact, it caught me by surprise. But even the VA, uh, when, when they're looking at disabilities, rates sleep problems incredibly high because of the uh, health benefits of high quality of sleep on the body. Uh, so, so yes, um, I, I do have a, a history of, of sleep problems, um, and I, I've been searching for solutions for a long time.
0: Well, and that's one of the reasons why talking to you in particular was fascinating for me because this entire journey that I'm on, I mean, I, you know, I know nothing from combat training or any of those sorts of things. I mean, I I frequently make the joke on my radio show um, that if there wasn't a, a need out there in the marketplace for people who can make fart noises and animal sounds, I wouldn't have a career. So I I <laughs> – You know, I mean, my own sleep issues, although there is a a PTSD diagnosis in there, that's a whole separate conversation. um, But as I've been trying to learn more about sleep in particular, which is, you know, one of sort of the pillars of Liz's work in in the book, Widen the Window as well. And she talks about how important sleep is. I've been looking at people who have particular sleep challenges baked in as part of their whether it's their career or something to do with their life, you know, so part of this journey that I, I, you have graciously agreed to come along on with me, um, you know, I want to learn things like how do you fall asleep if you're in orbit on the International Space Station? How do you fall asleep the night before Super Bowl Sunday if you're out there in the starting lineup? How do you fall asleep In all these various circumstances, and so one of the things that if I was to show you sort of the map from the very beginning of the conception of this show, the the show itself and the book that will follow, right on the first page is a question that this the best way that I could think of to write it down in the fewest number of words possible, and maybe you can help me shine some light on this, is is, it's right even here in, in my notes. How do you fall asleep in a foxhole? And, you know, I mean, that was obviously a very um, basic description of it, but it has become recently one of the things that has gotten the attention of people like you who are training our men and women in uniform is the, the idea that better sleep could make you a better, more effective soldier. So talk to me about how that process even begins. How do you teach someone how to sleep better?
1: We have, this has been a bit of a topic for a while, although on the periphery in the Marine Corps, uh, there's a retired Marine Lieutenant General, Paul Van Riper, who is an interesting figure in his own right, uh, you know, we we've got a lot of people who try to project themselves as intellects. Uh, he really is, and in fact, you, you can tell he is an intellect because he doesn't spend any time talking about how intellectual he is. <laughs> um, and uh, he had been concerned about sleep and the impact of sleep deprivation. On functioning of leaders for quite a while, when he commanded the Second Marine Division, he imposed sleep cycles on units and operations, uh, knowing that there are times when you simply can't. You're stuck in in the fight, whatever that happens to be, whether you're in an operations center, you know, commanding units. Or you're in the fight itself. You're, you're going to have to work for 24 or 48 hours. But but if you push yourself all the time when you don't have to, when you need to, you will end up collapsing. Um, in fact, General Van Wyck Bruce, and he would come and when I had the school for captains, he he came and would speak to the students. You know there were some people that were just sort of. On, on the itinerary. And I, I was always sensitive about who we had come and talk to the students, uh, for a bunch of different reasons. A part of it is I you know if they didn't have anything to say about you, I, I didn't want to waste the students' time. And Marine captains are they're like sophomores, they're cynical. They've got all the answers in the world, and we lose our credibility when we have people holding them hostage, telling them things that aren't of interest to them or of no value to them. Uh, but I, I added uh, another period from General Van Riper. He, he was somebody I wanted to have in front of our students. Our students need to be, needed to be exposed to somebody who would challenge them intellectually and challenge them about the idea of thinking and how you develop your your own ability to think, the, the, the processes and the discipline necessary. But he had been working on this for, for quite a while. And institutionally, we, you know, we picked it up kind of, sort of, but we, we never really kind of disciplined ourselves. And I remember my own experiences, in particular as a company commander, I, I, go to the field, I wouldn't get sleep until the third night, and, and it was as a consequence of exhaustion, not out of my ability to sleep. I was a light sleeper, sleeping in the field, is in a foxhole, if you will, is always tough. And and if you don't sleep well, as you know, the conditions that enable it are difficult. I, I also, uh, I had a couple of billets where I was a parachutist. And I'm afraid of heights, and I would not sleep uh, the night before parachute jumps for for obvious reasons. And and then of course, there's no better way to get into trouble than to walk into something that demanded focus and attention uh, in a in an exhausted condition. So yeah, we Neil, there's no question about it. We need to do better. We do know that the aviation guys pay close attention to it and they, they have their flight days uh, and, and they will limit, no kidding, actual flight operations because they know that the brain starts to degrade when you are tired and exhausted and things happen inside of aircraft very quickly. And if you're behind it, you can end up with with a mishap, and we have sufficient evidence that now drives aviation, and we're starting to do that now with motor vehicles. You know that, in particular, the heavy emphasis that we've had on driving operations to be in the you know the mine protected vehicles as we were transiting. If the transit isn't the mission, then we certainly want to minimize the risk in transit to the point where we start executing the mission. And that drove a lot of the mine protected vehicles and and, and all the rest of that. And we and we do know that exhausted drivers increase the likelihood of mishaps and the problems that come along with that. So yes, we we have really got to do better about it. And some of it is, no kidding, having limits on the amount of operations you can do during the normal routine, even in combat operations. But, but we have to do even better than that. I, one of these solutions for me when I'm in the field is I use earplugs. The earplugs helped me get sleep. They would help filter out the kind of noises that would cause me to wake up when I was sleeping. Uh, I We haven't institutionalized this better, and we need to. And that means understanding the individual and understanding the individual's needs and peculiarities to enable them to improve their sleep that, would, that we can then use while we're not just frankly, all the time, you know, back in the barracks as well as in training and operations uh, to help improve the quality of sleep so that we can get more out of the individual when we really need to. Uh, We haven't done that well enough. I I think we're trying to move in that direction. Part of my concern is that the motivation to this is more about, you know, post-deployment, Uh, kinds of things and well-defined, well-understood, well-known stress rather than I think what Liz is trying to drive with mindfulness is just improving, you know, your normal healthful habits that can then improve the entire baseline for people and then also build in the kinds of discipline that bring about more healthful habits. But it's a hard thing to do. It's like trying to get young people to make better choices with eating and their off-duty behaviors. And it's it's cultural. So these are things that we we have to work right from the beginning and that that means incorporating them into the first contact we have with individuals that's at boot camp at officer candidate school the basic school and we teach them to people we we incorporate the techniques in the normal things we should be doing but also making them aware of these things so they could be smarter understand the things that change in their lives i'm sleeping better i feel better i'm healthier i'm more awake you know whatever the case may be and and to be able to do the causal linkages that hmm i make better choices with what i eat how i behave whatever the case may be and i perform better uh and then hopefully people will be smarter it's a hard thing to do we fight drug use, we fight alcohol, we fight um, uh, the kinds of behaviors that people seek to thrill themselves riding motorcycles fast, the immersion inside of video games that keep them, you know, wired and heightened all the time. They've got to be able to manage themselves in very high-stress environments. Uh, how to respond when I when I notice the IED tripwire? How do I respond after the ambush has started? Uh, so we've got to have people that, that can jump into very, very high performance immediately. Um, but at the same time, we've got to be able to ensure that they're ready for that, and that they're not always operating at this high level, that when it is required, they're exhausted, and there's nothing more to reach to, whether it's the knots of the central nervous system, or exhaustion from sleep, or frankly, other behaviors where they're not in good physical condition. Uh, so I, my concern is a little bit, Neil, it's, and I don't know if this got picked up before, that, that we are responding institutionally uh, we are reacting to uh, negative behaviors, which are things we want to. I mean, we want to identify the person who might be under stress, who could be at risk for suicide or, or, or some other high risk behavior. But, but we want to instill in them an understanding to uh, maybe change those behaviors by improving choice. So, and it's more than just, you know, the one class at boot camp on nutrition. It's got to be something that our leaders understand that we incorporate into all forms of communications with them and the things that we do. We go out for physical training instead of just breaking up, everybody going in the shower and we go on to the next event. We really go through the decompression, if you will, exercises. We start building those things into high performance training as we come out of it. Um, it's more than taping taking the deep breath, but it's you know the the techniques that Liz uh, has developed. But we incorporate them where it makes perfect sense into the things that we're already doing, and we not just build the behaviors, but we make sure the Marines understand why and the consequence of that, so that they can be smarter about what they do and. Make better choices.
0: Among the heartening things that I can take away from this conversation, one, the Marine Corps specifically and the military in the bigger picture recognize how important sleep and things connected to it are, which is great. Uh, and two, yes. they're just as much in the dark as I am about how to improve the quality of it. So you know what? If the Marine Corps can't figure it out yet either, I can beat myself up a little bit less about it. So I'm grateful for that, too. But uh, hopefully somewhere along this journey, all of us find the answers we're looking for. And I know as long as they've got people like you who are leading the charge to uh, try and improve these kinds of situations, then everybody's in good hands. Uh, and and I am grateful for your time. I'm grateful uh, for your service, of course, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, and and just very happy that you had some time to spend on this with me today. So, uh, General, uh, thank you so much. I I really appreciate the time.
1: Absolutely, you know, and just it, just a quick uh, detour. You said something that was very revealing about beating yourself up for not. I did the same thing, um, boy. And isn't that kind of the death spiral? Yeah, you're already having trouble sleeping. And now you're punching yourself in the chest over it instead of and you're increasing the stress instead of understanding. So, yes, if we can make people smarter so that they're when they're inside of this, whether it's a tight turn of a high performance situation or the slow turn of, you know, I'm not sleeping very well. They can think there's I went through. um I, i'm a i'm a believer in training i had um a total malfunction in free fall one day um, and and the American army does training very very well they're brutal about it in many ways it's kind of checklist and part of it is um, so that when when you're in the heat of the moment you are executing and and hopefully thinking yourself through, but if you can't think yourself through, you can still execute to save your life. So I, I went to pull and nothing happened. And I was able to think myself through that within, oh, a couple seconds, maybe 1,000 to 1,500 feet. And and I knew I needed to pull my reserve, and I did so. Um, and And when I got to the ground, The training that we always go through is very mundane. It's repetitive. It's almost intellectually insulting in many ways. It's physically painful, hanging agony, if you will. But you know, you're you're hanging in the straps, going through the drill, and then it worked out for me when I had you know a couple thousand feet and only a couple seconds to think about it. And and the other thing that was interesting, I was talking through this with Liz. Uh, As as we were going through one of the classes, and and she stopped me, and she said, uh, and she asked me how I was feeling. She noticed my breathing had shortened, my pupils had dilated, and it was evident that my heart rate had increased. And I was reliving that experience as I talked to her about it. Um, And that was, again, Neil, I'd become a believer. I love smart Marines. Um, I I sent when I was at Force Reconnaissance, I had a choice of sending the Marines to either dive school with the Navy or dive school with the Army, and I chose the Navy. The Army does make them very good. They're tough. They go through all sorts of high-end, very frightening drills and stuff like that. The Navy makes them smarter, and I wanted smarter divers, not harder divers. I wanted them to be able to think through the problems underwater so that they can understand what's happening to them and make the right decisions because being underwater is very dangerous. You can die. You can die if you overreact and race to the top. You've got to have your wits about you. And if you don't understand what you're doing, you can't manage yourself. So sometimes... You know, so, so I I am a believer in making people smarter about this, giving them good information and then building the drills around it if they need to be so that at the point where they only have a couple seconds and a couple thousand feet to think about it, they can figure it out and save their lives and maybe even more importantly, save the lives of others around and successfully execute the mission. So, yeah, I'm I'm a believer in it. In so many ways, but I'm also, um, I think, a little bit on on the periphery for this uh, as well. So there's a lot of missionary work that's going into it, and very often it's, you know, one step forward and seven-eighths of a step back.
0: And And yet— Uh, Every eighth of a step counts. So if if that's. Yes, it does. Absolutely. If that's the direction we're headed and and we're consistently headed there, uh, then, yeah, people like me are grateful. Um, And and like I say, hopefully there's answers out there for all of us. It's just, you know, um, I, I think probably men and women in uniform are a terrific example of. You know, in my own case, um, I can't take a sleeping pill if I have trouble sleeping because I've got to wake up the next morning and then we go back to the conversation about the fart noises and animal sounds. Um, Men and women in uniform, obviously, <laughs> sleeping pills, not an option uh, because they have far more important things to do than I do when they wake up. And I imagine probably on, an, you know, half a second's notice, they have to be able to wake up and perform sometimes. Um, so it's interesting that everybody, uh, is, is on a similar path in terms of trying to figure out what the things are that will help us all get better sleep so we can perform better. And, uh, it'll be interesting to watch when somebody finally stumbles across what the magic thing is, but, um, right now it seems like every person on earth has a different magic thing that works for them, so... We stumble around in the dark metaphorically and and in a literal sense as well. Uh, General, again, I I can't be more grateful for the time and the insight. And uh, and I appreciate your time absolutely I appreciate that thank you very much Neil Major General Melvin Speece on this week's episode of the snooze button podcast uh, again a couple things we mentioned off the top if you like what we're doing a few things you can do to help us out you can go to uh, this one will cost you nothing rate your pod rate this com slash snooze rate this podcast podcast.com slash snooze. Leave a review or a rating or both. Uh, That'll let more people know that we're out there and uh, we'll expose the work we're trying to do to more people. If you are so inclined, jump to buymeacoffee.com and throw a couple of bucks at the show, um, you know, just to help keep the show afloat. Cause like I say, I'm trying to cut my caffeine intake. So I don't know that I'm going to be drinking all of the coffee that we receive, um, or feel free to just share our stuff on the socials. Uh, you'll find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at get Your Snooze on. in the meantime, we'll be back with another episode next Monday. till then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?